It's been a real joy to spend this week together. And just when you've got this many people in a room, statistically, it's true that there will be a number of people here who've actually spent their birthday with us, in- including my favourite oldest daughter. Think about that carefully. Neve. Happy birthday, Neve. Whose birthday is today? But there's many people here. Put your hand up, actually, if you've had a birthday since we've been here at Ancon. A few people? How many? I'm trying to see. Sorry? Someone else today? And Neve and someone else. William up the back. So I just thought we'd sing them happy birthday together, right? So, happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear. Happy birthday to you. Hip, ray, ray, ray. I think Neve owes me a coffee now because I actually did the shout out. Okay, right. Almost everyone wants to know how to live well in the world. Not just how do I treat other people, but how do I navigate being a person who has to get a job, make a living, use the world's resources, spend money, time and energy doing stuff? What does it mean to live, to do those things well in the world? So I've got a question for you to discuss in triplets, which I think will come up on the screen. The question is this, is it right to pay for a streaming service, Netflix, Disney, Spotify, whatever, when people live in poverty? Now, I know this is an academic question because you don't pay for your streaming services anyway, your parents do, but is it right, is it right, just look, truth bombs, they hurt, right? Is it right to pay for a streaming service when people live in poverty? Why don't you have just two, three minutes to discuss with the people around you? All right, so the reality is that as Christians, Jesus ought to figure at the centre of our thinking on all of these sort of questions. But so often Jesus doesn't really get into the picture when we tackle these issues. How does Jesus shape my decision about getting a new phone? How does Jesus shape my relationship to work and career or my relationship with the environment and sustainability or my relationship with food? If Jesus is who he says he is, then he stands at the centre of everything including our relationship with the world around us and everything in it. So that's what we're going to explore together this morning. Now, I'm going to give us three key foundation stones from the Bible, which you can then use, I think, I hope, to build a more detailed answer. First foundation stone is going to be about what it means to be human. The second is about Jesus. And the third is about creation. Now, I realize you're weary. Probably some of you didn't sleep at all last night. Uh, it is Friday morning and you, um, I want to reintroduce you to a tradition that we've had at annual conference on Friday mornings. Uh, it's something I think we should reinstitute. It's going to come up on the screen. I call it Friday StandCon. So the fact is, it's harder to fall asleep when you're standing up. So if you start to doze off, take your book, take your Bible, take your pen, stand up, move out of your row and just Find a place to stand around the edges. You will find it much easier to concentrate if you're standing up, and that way you won't waste this session. And we usually end up with quite a sizable number of people standing up. So you definitely won't be alone. So welcome to Friday StandCon. Okay, our first foundation stone, page 48 in your book. Humans are created as God's image bearers, 
stewards for him of his creation. We're going to hear right now from Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Thanks, Ryan. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now my bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. A few weeks ago, NASA revealed the latest pictures from its latest toy, the James Webb Space Telescope. Already, if you've been online, you might have seen some pictures of astounding astronomical objects. Yet none of these amazing stellar objects are the image of God. If we want to see the image of God, we're actually looking in the wrong direction. As beautiful and as awe-inspiring 
as the universe is out there, the place to look to see the image of God is actually look in this auditorium. Look right here. Out of all of the wonders that God has created, it's us, human beings, who alone he created in his image. And you can see there on page 48 from Genesis 1.26, at the climax of the six days of God's creation, God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness. And a bit further down in verse 27, so God created humankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female, he created them. Now you might not think you inspire as much awe as the Carina Nebula, but you are the one. God created in his own image. So what does it mean that you've been created in God's image? Well, go back to the Genesis 1 passage there on your page and you can see the answer. At the very least, and I'm going to put it up on the screen as well, to be made in God's image is to be his representative ruling presence in the world. I'll explain what I mean. Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Made in God's image, humanity's unique task is to rule over the rest of creation in the same way that the one true living God rules over the whole lot, including us. And in that way, we image him. We rule like he rules. In fact, more than that, we don't just rule like he rules, we rule for him. We represent his ruling presence in the world. So in the ancient world, rulers, kings, would sometimes set up images of themselves throughout their kingdom, statues, to show who who actually ruled this place. Well, that's what the one true living God has done. He set up images of himself throughout this creation. That's us. We're his images, or at least meant to be. We represent his ruling presence in his world. And because we are his image bearers, our rule is a limited rule, a rule with constraints. God's intent is not that we're just let loose with the power that he's given us to do whatever we like with his creation. No, we're ruling for him, under him. Or to pick up a different Bible image, we're stewards of God's creation for him. In the ancient world, a steward was a servant who was entrusted with the master's goods for the purposes set by the master. A steward didn't just have a free hand to do whatever he or she wanted to do with the resources entrusted to them because actually it wasn't the steward's stuff. As God's image bearers, we're his stewards and what he has entrusted to us is the entirety of the rest of creation. So how do we be good image-bearing stewards for God? Well, it means a couple of things, and I'll put it up on the screen again. I think it means that we rule according to his revealed plans and purposes, and we seek to rule reflecting his character and his priorities. We rule according to his revealed plans and purposes, and we seek to rule reflecting his character and priorities. But the reality of sin, where we reject God's word and God's way, the reality of sin means that we don't want to really be his stewards. We, we want to use his creation for ourselves, not for him. So we reject his plans and purposes for creation, 
and we use it for our own selfish ends. We rebel against his character and his priorities, and we rule in our own way, in whatever way seems right in our own eyes. So as a result of that, instead of caring for creation, we exploit creation. Instead of ruling over creation, creation actually resists our rule, so that work, which is created good by God, work becomes difficult, toil. And instead of creating loving communities of care, we get dysfunction. And all of that started right at the beginning with Adam and Eve and their rejection of God's word and way in the garden, which was a a rejection, actually, of God's call to them to be his representative image bearers. So what are the implications of this? Well, one implication from this first foundation stone is this. By the simple fact of your existence, by the simple fact that God has created you, you have a purpose to be God's image bearer in his world. He wants you to steward his creation for him, according to his purposes, plans, priorities, and character. All the treasures of creation are not there for your exploitation, your exploitation of your own ends. The whole earth is his, including me, you. And we look to him for what we should do with it for how we should do it and why we should do it. So as God's image bearers, we should care about sustainability. We should care about justice. We should care about biodiversity and depleting food stocks, about poverty, about the impact of climate change, about sustainable farming. Not because environmentalism is the gospel, it's not. Neither is social justice the gospel. We care about these things because we're God's people. We've embraced being his image bearers, his stewards of his creation for him, according to his plans, his purposes, his character and priorities. Well, that's the first foundation stone. The second foundation stone, there on page 49. Jesus is the living Lord. He's the firstborn over all creation for whom and through whom All things exist. So we're going to hear from Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20. This, frankly, is one of the most astounding paragraphs about the Lord Jesus that you can find in the New Testament. So let's just soak it in. Okay, thanks, Felicity. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, shed on the cross. 
Sadly, today is not the day we get to pause and reflect on every phrase in that amazing statement about who the Lord Jesus is. It is a gold-plated paragraph, and it's worth just reading prayerfully and reflectively. These verses actually touch on many of the truths that we've already talked about this week. But for our purposes this morning, I want to highlight a few extra things. First, from verse 15, Jesus is the image of God. Remember our first foundation stone? is that human beings are God's image bearers. But so often we fail to show forth God's image. We reject his word and way. We don't rightly steward what he's entrusted to us. But Jesus is the true and perfect image bearer. He rules over creation exactly as God his Father wants him to, according to his Father's plans and purposes, reflecting his Father's character and priorities. Second point, still in verse 15, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. The firstborn in a family, it's not hard to work out, is the firstborn, right? It's the oldest child. Now, as an oldest child myself, I can tell you all about being the firstborn. We are the responsible ones, the mature ones, the ones who have greater wisdom and insight. Put your hand up if you're a firstborn. You know what I'm talking about. And frankly, we had it much, much harder than our siblings. Our parents had no idea what they were doing when we came along. We had to do all the hard work of breaking them in, which you benefited from. We were the ones that they left behind in the shopping centre because they forgot they had a kid. I'm not burdened by that. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. (laughs) We were the ones who they dressed up in ridiculous costumes, like some sort of toy doll. We were the ones who had ridiculously early bedtimes when we were like 16 and who carried the burden of all of their parental expectations. Am I right? Right, so you numbers numbers two, three, four, whatever, you have no idea of the burden of being a firstborn. But Jesus, he was a firstborn. He understands our pain. Yeah, nah. That is not what firstborn is about. In ancient cultures like those in which the Bible was written, being firstborn in a family meant not just that you were born first, but that you had an exalted place in the family. You were the one who bore the family name and who carried forward the family line. You were the one who would inherit the majority of the family estate. Jesus is described here as the firstborn over all creation. Now, you've got to be careful here. This is not saying that he was the first thing created. It can't mean that of what Paul actually says here in a couple of verses on, in verses 16 and 17. All things were created through him. So Jesus being the firstborn means that he has this exalted place above everything else that has been created. He's the firstborn over all creation. He rules. It's been given to him as his inheritance. So why does Jesus the Son have this exalted firstborn position? The answer is in verse 16. Because absolutely everything has been created in him, through him, and for him. Think about that. Everything has been created in Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. The reason Jesus has this firstborn position over creation is because none of it would exist without him. Everything, visible and invisible, no matter how big or small, everything exists and continues to exist 
only because of him, the sun. So the Milky Way galaxy and Milky Way bars, they all exist through and for Jesus, the sun, because he's the firstborn over all creation. Hoppy the rabbit, my pet nemesis, and hip-hop rappers, all created in and for the Lord Jesus. Sydney University and Single Origin Coffee. Which do you value more? But, but all of it actually created in, through, and for the Lord Jesus. Now, in life, in life there are little truths and there are big truths. I hate be true. That's true, I do. But frankly, it's a little truth. And honestly, it's not just very important to anyone else, except to me. But this truth about Jesus, it's a big truth. It applies to everyone and is about absolutely everything. Truths don't get any bigger than that. Every single thing that exists, exists through and for the living Lord Jesus. Everything has his name on it. My debit card. I mean, it says Rowan Kemp on the debit card, but actually, whose money is it? Well, that money was created through and for the Lord Jesus. So really, it's his name on the card. I'm just his steward. Whose car did I drive here to Ancon? I mean, it has my name on the rego papers, but my car exists through and for the Lord Jesus. Whose body is this? I mean, this body exists because of the Lord Jesus and for the Lord Jesus. This laptop, this food, this dog, these weeds, this music, this work, this beach, this road, this cafe, these rocks, that office block, this university, all the people who study there, all the people who work there, all the work that they do. The living Lord Jesus is the firstborn over it all. And properly understood, it all exists for him. Everything has Jesus' name on it. So what then does it look like to live well in this world where everything has Jesus' name on it? Well, fortunately for us, we're not in the dark on that. Jesus himself has told us how to live well in this world where he is the firstborn. Have a look at what Jesus says to his disciples in Luke chapter 12, verses 29 to 34. It's there on page 49. He says, and do not set your heart, talking to his disciples, do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world, that is the world that doesn't know God, runs after all such things. And your father knows you need them. But seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. This is another one of those utterly radical teachings from Jesus. I wish we had more time to explore it in detail. But the heart of it is this. If Jesus is the living Lord over all creation, and it all exists for him, and we're going to be his image-bearing stewards for him, then the way we relate to creation is the way Jesus, should, Jesus tells us to. We're his stewards. He gives us direction about how to relate to creation. Well, here Jesus says the way to relate to creation is to seek first his kingdom, rather than seeking first the things in the creation, the things of this world. 
because he says, your heavenly father will provide what you need as you seek first his kingdom. Now, there's a lot more to say about how to put that into action, but what does it look like to seek first his kingdom when I have to pay my phone bill next month or find rent or provide a roof over the head of my family in a city, frankly, that worships home ownership and wealth creation? So if you'd like to chase this up more, which I'd encourage you to, especially how it touches our use of money, then go to the EU podcast, uh, search up on the EU podcast, money and... And then up will come three talks, money and God, money and us, money and me, which explore Jesus' teaching on money in more detail. But the foundation stone here is clear, right? Jesus is the living Lord, the firstborn over all creation, for whom and through whom every single thing exists. And that means for us, as his image-bearing stewards, that we follow his call to seek first his kingdom, not chase after the things of the world in themselves. So one more foundation stone to go, but first we're going to pause here and sing together in praise of our living Lord Jesus who rules over all. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was. Because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. What's the most certain future event in your life? I'm going to pop a question up on the screen. Take a minute to have a chat to two people around you. What's the most certain future event in your life? There's some options. I will graduate. I will own property in Sydney. Lunch today. Or maybe something else. Have a chat to the people around you. What's the most certain future event in your life?
Okay. Hand up if you said, I will graduate. Well, he's, he's hoping that you do. Um, who said, I will own property in Sydney? Yeah, there's a harsh reality, right? Who said, lunch today? Okay, that's playing it safe out of the options that were on the screen. Uh, who just said, oh, something else? And they had something else. To, who put, put your hand up if you said, oh, something else. Then I'm just, put, keep your hand up if you said, death. I know it's morbid, but... Well, none of these options, including death, is actually certain. The most certain future event, in fact, the only certain future event, is the return of the Lord Jesus. And everything that's tied up with his return. And since we don't know the timing of his return, it could be before we get to lunch today. So you might not make it to lunch or to graduation. You might not make it to marriage, to having children, to owning a house. You might not make it to the moment of your physical death. Jesus might return before any of those things. Jesus' return with all that comes with it is the only certain future event of your life. So our third foundation stone is about Jesus' return and what that will mean for the future of creation, including humanity. Because the Bible encourages time and time again to live in the present in the light of God's certain future. Live in the present in the light of God's certain coming future. So as we try to work out what it means to live well in the present now, we need to understand the future God has in store for his creation when Jesus returns. So the passage we had recited for us was from Revelation chapter 11. It's there on page 50 in your book. This is a vision that the risen Lord Jesus gave to John about Jesus' return. It's a vision, which means it's full of images and symbols, which can make it a bit trippy to try to interpret. So it starts in verse 15 there. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven. Seven is the number in the Bible that often signals completion. You might remember that God created everything in seven days. So here's a vision for the completion of world history. Here's the end game. Heaven is the place from where God rules over everything. So loud voices in heaven signify a big announcement that affects everyone and will certainly take place. What is this announcement for the end of human history? Second half of verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. The Lord Jesus, God's Messiah or Christ, will rule over this world and all creation and do so forever. What will Jesus' rule over creation involve? Well, two things which you can see there in verse 18. Jesus' rule means executing God's wrath on evil and showering God's reward on his people. Have a look at verse 18. The nations were angry. They don't like Jesus' rule. And your wrath has come. That is, come on them. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. So let's take each of these two things in turn. First of all, the destruction of evil by Jesus, the just judge. Look at what Jesus himself says in John chapter 5, verse 22, there on page 50. 
Jesus says, moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Jesus, the Son, is the judge, entrusted with this task by God, his Father. What will Jesus' judgment be like? Well, still in that passage, jump down to verses 28 and 29. He says, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear the Son's voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to life, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. I heard someone make the comment recently that it's a shame that Christian churches are no, church buildings are no longer surrounded by graveyards. I don't know if you've seen you know, old churches or old pictures, surrounded by graveyards, and they're saying, oh, it's a shame it's not like that anymore. I think they're right. Imagine each Sunday as you're gathering with your in Christ family, you have to walk through the graves of those who are waiting to hear Jesus' voice call them to come out, whether they're going to live eternally or whether they're going to be condemned. That is a pretty powerful and deliberate reminder of how the future should shape my life in the present as I gather together with God's people on this particular Sunday. It's a reminder of what is at stake as you gather to hear God's word amongst his people. And in case we get confused about the basis of Jesus' judgment, Jesus is being very explicit in the same passage in verse 24. He says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but crosses over from death to life. The key is believing, faith, putting your day-by-day trust in the word of Jesus. That's what doing what is good in God's eyes is, trusting Jesus, entrusting yourself to him, letting him be God and Jesus be your Lord, refusing to trust in him. That is what is doing evil. Now, there are many implications from the reality of the coming day of Jesus' judgment. I've listed a few passages there at the bottom of page 51, which you might like to look at. And we could add more, like, say, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, which Musa took us through on Tuesday night. Since we know what it is to fear the Lord because of the coming judgment, we try to persuade others, be reconciled to God. Or 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 asks the question, since we know everything will be destroyed in this way, how do we now live? Peter's answer is that we live holy and godly lives as we look forward to the day of Jesus' return. And Philippians 3, 18 and 19 is important. Paul says, As I have often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Paul weeps when he thinks of the condemnation that is coming to those who refuse Jesus. We can't talk about the judgment to come without tears, without prayers for God to quickly soften their hearts before Jesus returns. And if, like me, you feel anxious about people you love who don't yet know Jesus and you're worried for them, rightly, Here's maybe four truths to hold on to if you're feeling worried about them. First of all, God does not desire the death of any sinner. We know that from his word. Instead, he urges them to turn to Jesus and live. So we know the heart of God on this. 
Secondly, there are no hearts that are too hard for the Lord Jesus to change by his spirit. Thirdly, our Heavenly Father hears the prayers of his people and he loves to give us good things. So persist in prayers for him to show them mercy. And fourth, take a risk. You might be the ambassador on Christ's behalf who urges them to be reconciled to God. So if you love them, if you're worried for them in the light of Jesus' coming return, share your heart for them with them. Whether it's a parent, whether it's a sibling, whether it's a friend, whether it's a child of yours. Prayerfully share your heart for them, with them. The second aspect of Jesus' return to rule is redemption for creation in Jesus, the resurrected one. Not only will we, as God's children who put our trust in Jesus, not only will we be resurrected with glorious new resurrection bodies, the entire creation will be set free from its present decay. You can see how Paul puts it in Romans 8.19 at the top of page 51. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to the decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. The sure hope for which creation is longing and groaning like a woman in childbirth is its liberation from its bondage to decay. Instead of that bondage, when Jesus returns and we're raised, creation itself will be freed. Instead of a decaying creation, it'll be an unimpeded, glorious creation. Resurrected and perfected children of God, living in a renewed and perfected creation of God. That is what Jesus will bring about when he returns to rule. I don't know if you've read the Narnia series by C.S. Lewis. It's an incredible extended allegory of the Christian worldview. I mean, I didn't know that when I first read it. I read it as a kid. I just thought it was a great story. But it's quite a... He's a genius. Like, well, he's now with the Lord. But he was a genius, right? I think in terms of this extended allegory of the Christian worldview in this series of books. In the very final book in the series, The Last Battle, Lewis describes the moment when Aslan, who's a lion, but who is the Jesus character in the stories, he describes this moment when Aslan returns... And the characters enter into the new creation. So this is how he described the change from this creation into the new perfected creation. Reading there on your page. Aslan said, The term is over. The holidays have begun. Right? Instead of term, put semester, right? The semester is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. 
And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and in which every chapter is better than the one before. I teared up when I read that again yesterday. Tears of joy and longing. I don't think it was just tears of tiredness. I think it actually was tears of joy and longing. Don't you long for that day that he's describing? For all of those days in our Lord Jesus' presence, when the burdens and anxieties and struggles and pain are over, and every chapter in the new resurrected creation is better than the one before. God's promised future should always shape our present. We not only look forward to that day when Jesus returns and renews all creation, we know now that this is not all there is. This around us, this does matter. It matters because we are God's image-bearing stewards, tending and caring for his creation for him, even as we seek first his kingdom. But there is something more wonderful to come. We have that sure hope and that shapes our response in the present. Talking about the return of Jesus and what he brings with him, that's always heavy. It's important, it's full of hope and joy, but also heavy. So I think this is a good stop to pause and pray. So Bree and Jared are going to come and lead us in prayer, and then we're going to see how do all of these three foundation stones work together. Hi, I'm Bree. I'm a fifth year in the Arts and Social Work faculty, and I'll be praying in light of God's judgment today. And I'm Jared, third year in the ACES faculty, and today I'll be praying in response to the coming salvation in Jesus Christ and the renewal of all things. Please pray with us. Heavenly Father, Sovereign Lord, Lord, we grieve the evil and sin we see around us in this world. We know that you created things as good, but that we in sin have ruined your creation and brought it to brokenness. We confess our sin before you, knowing we deserve your judgment. Thank you, Father, that you are a just and merciful God. Thank you that you do not turn a blind eye to evil, but that you judge justly. Father, thank you that in Jesus we have the hope that everything will be made right. He will return to judge the living and the dead. Thank you that those who have done evil will be punished justly. Sovereign Lord, we pray for those who do evil, especially those persecuting your people. If it is your will, please bring them to repentance through Jesus. But if that is not your will, we trust that you will judge justly and silence the mouths of evildoers. We praise you for your justice and mercy. Lord, you have seen all evil. Do not be silent. Do not be far from us, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. And let us continue praying. Dear Heavenly Father, you have shown us your love. 
your grace and your mercy through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for the promise that we would not perish in our sins, but by your initiative and not our own, you gave us salvation through your sacrificial act on the cross. Lord, we pray that you will create in us a pure heart and restore to us the joy of your salvation. Let us hold on to the hope of your gospel promises and let us always remain faithful as your image bearers as we await the renewal of humanity and creation when Christ returns. Let us always trust in your sovereign plans and your promised future for us. In response to knowing your love and salvation, let us be sent out into the world and be convicted to share your gospel among the unbelievers. May you reveal to those yourself your love for them who do not know you, so that they may also believe in the words of Jesus and share in the coming salvation and renewal in Jesus Christ our Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. So how do we put these three foundation stones together when it comes to a specific issue like the questions I posed at the beginning? So on page 53, I've put together a framework or a worksheet that takes these three foundation stones about humanity, Jesus and creation and breaks them down into some specific questions you can ask to help you work out what a biblical response might look like. It's like, a, what do they call it? It's a, not a scaffold. That's right. It's a scaffold. Yeah, I'm with you, education peeps. Um, so looking at the table on page 53, you can see that there's a key question we're trying to answer. What does image-bearing stewardship of whatever the issue is, recycling, buying a new iPhone, global debt, what does image-bearing stewardship of this thing look like as we seek first God's kingdom? That's a big question we're trying to answer. So we tackle it by breaking down the question according to the three foundation stones we're looking at, some questions about humanity, about Jesus and about creation, with some application points at the end, including how we can then talk about this topic with non-Christians as an opportunity for evangelism, because living God's way in his world is always an open door for sharing the good news of the Lord Jesus. So to see how the framework works, I've asked two of our EU senior staff, Katie and Brian, to use this framework to tackle one topic each of their choosing. So please welcome up Katie and Brian. Hi everyone, I'm Katie and I'm one of the senior staff uh, and I work with the STEM students, so that's, yeah, you know who you are. Um, so <laughs> something that I have been recently challenged by is to consider how my actions and decisions affect the health of our world, the creation that we live in. Climate and the environment is such a huge area to think about, but I'm going to be fairly specific today and talk to you about reducing our household waste and composting. So my question at the top of the biblical framework on page 53 that Rowan's done for us, in my, so my question that I'm going to be using is, what does image-bearing stewardship of my household food waste look like as we seek first God's kingdom? 
Now, this might seem like a very random topic to start to talk about now, composting, especially if you've had a micro-sleep on this the last day of ANCON and suddenly wake up and think, did I miss the end of ANCON and wake up in the wrong conference? But no, we are going to use this framework Rowan has given us to work through this decision and hopefully it can serve as a helpful model for figuring out how to make wise stewarding decisions in our lives that can be applied to many other areas. So as we break this question down, let's look at part one, humanity. As we think as our role as humanity, what does it look like to steward my waste well as one of God's image bearers? What is God's plan and purpose, God's character and priorities? As we've heard, God made all of creation and gave humans specific responsibility to rule and subdue or to serve and preserve the world we are given to live in. We are to be his representative ruling presence. In recent years, our understanding of the damage we humans have been doing to our world and the effects of it on not only the health of the earth itself, but the effects of humanity who depend on our earth means that we ought to examine our own behaviours and responsibility to understand what ruling responsibly over God's creation looks like. In thinking about my waste and the stuff that goes out of my house, I realised that there's a dilemma, that actually having zero waste is near impossible, but also that when we send things to landfill, they don't actually just get covered up and disappear, but there's a long-lasting effect. There are problems from leachate and toxins and greenhouse gases that come from organic material, like our food waste, being trapped and breaking down anaerobically. That's without oxygen. So I also learned that composting our food removes a huge percentage of the material that most households send to landfill. It also removes the problems of greenhouse gases and, in fact, does the opposite. Realising this made me rejoice. It made me rejoice that God is so clever that there are ways to convert these natural things that we don't use, like our food scraps, dried leaves, organic matter, plants, basically anything that came from anything living, um, can rot away. Not just disappear, but through the work of microbes and worms and other creatures and natural processes, turn our rubbish into something that's actually beneficial to put back into the ground rather than cause problems for future generations. The scientist in me loves understanding the balance between carbon and nitrogen and how clever it is that all these old dead stuff brings nourishment to growing plants. And I'm actually not even a keen gardener. I feel like I have more of a black thumb than a green thumb. But I see God at work through his creation, that there's a purpose to the way God has designed this decaying to work. And I think it's pretty cool, and it shows his intentional, purposeful creativity. For me, this has now become a way that I am able to steward the little bit of earth that I live in. We are all tenants in God's creation, and God is the ultimate owner and creator of it all. So we are responsible to him for how we, as image bearers, represent represent him in our lives. How we live out being his representative ruling presence, living out faithfulness to God, but also how our actions can be a testimony to those around us about how our God cares for creation too. 
I also recognize that not everyone can steward their waste in this way. So I'm not now suggesting that, as a rule, all Christians must compost. That's unhealthy legalism that doesn't recognize the complexity and differences in all of our lives. Until last year when when we moved, this wasn't really something that I could easily do either. But as we seek to look at this biblical framework for us understanding how we as image-bearing stewards can seek God's kingdom in everyday activities, like taking out the rubbish, we see how God is at work. So this brings me to part two in the framework, Jesus. How does knowing all things are created in and for Jesus shape our understanding of minimizing waste through composting and our response to that? Well, all things are created for Jesus and can be used to honor him and sadly also to dishonor him if used in the wrong way. So our kingdom response ought to be to think about how my actions could be either bringing glory to and honoring Jesus Or are we seeking first something else when we go about our actions? When we ask this question about remembering how Jesus' central role in shaping the decisions we make, it's helpful to consider what happens when we fail to have Jesus as Lord over whatever that good gift is. Whether whether that gift we are considering is creation itself, sex, money, family, or even ourselves, I think there are two key errors that we fall into if we fail to remember Jesus' lordship. And that's either abusing that gift because of selfishness and greed that takes over or idolizing the gift rather than the giver. The late great Billy Graham warns of what happens when we fail to remember that creation was made in and for Jesus. He says, Why should we be concerned about the environment? It isn't just because of the dangers we face from pollution, climate change, or other environmental problems. Although these are serious, for Christians, the issue is much deeper. We know that God created the world, and it belongs to him, not us. Because of this, we are only stewards or trustees of God's creation, and we aren't to abuse or neglect it. The Bible says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it the world and all who live in it. When we fail to see the world as God's creation, we will end up abusing it. Selfishness and greed take over and we end up not caring about the environment or the problems we're creating for future generations. But for some, it could go the other way and could become an idol to care for the environment. That in seeking to do the green thing, we make an idol out of creation and end up worshipping the creation rather than the creator. We could end up prioritising the physical earth over God's kingdom rather than caring for the earth because of God's kingdom. This can happen with any of the good gifts that God gives us too. So the two dangers of getting Jesus' preeminent role in creation wrong is that we may either abuse or idolise the creation. The reminder that Jesus is the one who this creation is for, and that includes us, gives us both boundaries and freedom to make decisions that might be different from someone else while we're both seeking to follow God. And what about the future of this world, the future of creation? On to part three in the framework. How does the knowledge of this future renewal shape our understanding 
of composting and our response or involvement in it. In some ways, we could easily say, well, God's going to reconcile all things to himself. That's in Colossians. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. God's going to fix this problem up, so don't bother. That doesn't sit right, does it? We don't say that about humanity and our sin. Paul says in Romans that we don't go on sinning so that grace may increase. God's got forgiveness covered. Don't worry. By no means. Why would we take advantage of God's compassion and reconciliation in other matters? It also doesn't sit right because we know that we're called to steward, to serve and preserve the earth as we rule over it. Knowing there is a new creation means we care about the current creation because Jesus cares enough about creation to restore and reconcile creation to himself. We care because Jesus shows care over his creation. He heals, brings order and lovingly rules, and we want to be like him. So on to part four of the framework, putting this into action. What are the implications for my life as I've considered this question? Well, there's lots of quite practical actions, actually. Uh, Last year, we rebooted an old compost tumbler that was left empty on the property that we moved into. That's my husband there, uh, putting scraps into it in our garden. Uh, So um, it could look like that. Uh, I also found a worm farm on Facebook Marketplace. Yeah. (laughs) So that's my eldest son, Daniel, uh, demonstrating how we collect food um, and things from our kitchen scraps and household things to feed the 3,000 odd worms that are in there. Um, not everyone likes the wriggly worms, but it's got a lid. Um, so <laughs> change was needed for our lives uh, for, to respond to the conviction that we had about this decision. Uh, I needed to do some research, and I watched a whole bunch of YouTube videos to try and figure out what I was doing. Um, and I need to make time every couple of days for what some call the spiritual discipline of composting. Uh, we have to take take it down to the garden and that's not so much fun in La Nina rain Um, and we've had to make an effort to teach or teach my husband teach our kids why there's another bin in the kitchen to put stuff in now so there's a cost to it um, and it takes effort but um, we've been able to do that in light of all that um, thinking about this has given me an opportunity to speak helpfully with non-christian friends and family about a different kind of motivation to care for the environment that my role is as an image-bearing steward. My prayer is that my actions might point to the God who created, cares for, and reconciles all things to himself. God reconciles the creation that we care for, and we are part of that creation. And God, through Jesus' death and resurrection, is reconciling us to himself as well. My name is Brian. I'm on the senior staff team working with the STEM faculties and with the public meetings team. I want to talk about music. I'd like to start by maybe doing a bit of a comparison of our musical tastes. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you some of the Spotify playlists that I've saved. And you can say, ooh, or yuck, as, uh, as you respond to them. So here's the first one. Feel good beats. Uh, Here's another one, happy jazz. Uh, Here's one, funky chill music. 
All right, what about this one? Chill lo-fi Christian hip-hop? Wow. <laughs> uh, uh, what about hip-hop worship? And last of all, preschool dance party. <laughs> nice. Uh, I do like a bit of background music, but depending on what's playing, uh, some of you might think, that's not real music. Or others might be thinking, oh, that's what I listen to too. And I guess that's an illustration of how music can unite us or divide us. It's a part of our lives, from our car trips to our shopping centers. But sometimes I'll find myself in a crowd, having a discussion and thinking, oh, no one here likes jazz, but I love jazz. Or maybe when I was younger, wow, he listens to Triple J. He is really cultured. Um, so, you know, so music is subjective, but it's also social. And of course, music is often a big part of our churches and Christian activities. And haven't the Ancon band served us so well this week? Uh, well, I'm, I'm part of that world as well. I direct music for my congregation. I play piano. I sometimes sing. I've written a few songs for uh, church uh, congregations as well. And so I'm li interested in listening to music, participating in music, playing music, and writing music as different ways to engage in creative and sometimes theological expression. So let's look at our framework now. And the first question is, what might it look like to steward music as God's image bearers? And to begin with, let's just take a moment to notice how amazing God's world really is. God has given us lots to listen to. As you've been walking around Katoomba this week, you might have heard the rippling of a flowing stream or the chirping of birds in the trees the sound of gravel beneath your feet, and of course, lots of voices and music as well. And I think it's simply remarkable that God has made the world to produce these sounds, and then he's made our ears to collect those vibrating air pressure, in, uh, and inside our ear, it performs a biological Fourier transform, so we interpret the frequencies as pitches and sounds and rhythms and harmonies and melodies. God has given us a remarkable gift of beautiful sounds. He's given us the ability to make and play musical instruments that order sounds in ways that are pleasing to the ear. What a gift. I'm so thankful that God has given us this gift, the ability to hear music and to make music. And in our stewardship of this gift, I think it's fitting for us to creatively cultivate beautiful, artistic, expressive sounds to the glory of God. Now, how does knowing all things are created in and for Jesus shape our understanding of music and our response to it? Well, if music is for Jesus, then let it point me to Jesus. Perhaps when I experience the body-tingling sound of a full orchestra, let that point me to the wonder and awe of God. Or when I listen to a jazz piece where the musicians are joyfully improvising as they respond to one another, let that remind me of the joyful interplay between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Trinity. When I listen to the rhyme and rhythm of a well-written rap, let that point me to the power of poetry and the written words of God. When I hear the thump of a subwoofer on the dance floor, 
let that remind me of the earth-moving power of Jesus to bring resurrection from the dead. And of course we should add that it's fitting and pleasing for some music to be specifically written for God's people to sing to God and to one another. That is the whole book of Psalms. And we're told in Ephesians 5 to speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music from our hearts to the Lord. We use our voices and our instruments vertically to praise God, horizontally to encourage one another. Well, the third question in our framework is, what could it look like to seek, for, seek first God's kingdom with respect to music? And on the one hand, I don't want to idolize music. Because some of us are performers. And when your ministry or your work is bound up in a talent or a skill that you possess, it is easy to put your identity and worth in it. Perfectionism can turn a good thing into an ultimate thing, making music a false god that demands our service. On the other hand, I don't want to neglect the power of music to inform and shape us. There is some music that I'm not that comfortable listening to because I find either the language or the themes unhelpful or even offensive as I try to follow Jesus. Now, I'm not legalistic about it, but my listening choices are shaped by it. And as a church, at church, I embrace the opportunity to sing shoulder to shoulder with God's people to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, as Ephesians 5 says. And as someone with an ear and training in music, I can serve the broader congregation through song leading and playing. Well, how does the future renewal of creation shape our understanding of music and our response to it? Well, the heavenly reality is that music will be part of the new creation. I know that because Revelation 4 and 5 show us a glimpse of God's throne room and the people and the elders and these four fantastic creatures that have heads and eyes and wings everywhere, they are singing God's praises. They're singing about God's power. They're singing about his worthiness. They're singing about Jesus as the lamb who was slain and who deserves all the glory. So I take it that music is not just a part of God's creation today. It's also a gift of the age to come that we get to enjoy now. We get to sing God's praises together, and we're participating when we do that in a preview, a pre-release version of the far greater reality to come. What are the, what are the implications for my life with respect to music? Well, I want to use music to love God and to love others, and one way I might be able to love God is maybe to write some music. And often in the Bible, like in musicals, breaking out into song is how people respond to things that, are, that, that move them, especially moments of God's powerful grace. And maybe a way to love others is for me to be mindful to choose the right music for the right moment. And I've noticed that the Ancon band have done a great job of picking songs that fit with the content and emotional tone of each moment in our, in our main sessions. And music is also a way to connect. My daughter is two years old, and she loves to sing. 
Twinkle, twinkle, little star. The wheels on the bus go round and round. The alphabet song. She sings to herself, but she loves it when we sing together. It's a way to connect. And in light of all of this, how might I speak helpfully to non-Christian friends and family about music? Well, one time this happened was when my lovely Persian, Iranian uh, neighbor, who's of the Baha'i faith, invited us over for dinner, uh, along with some of her other Baha'i friends. It was kind of like a reverse dialogue dinner or gospel opportunity. Um, We had some great conversation over dinner, including talking about our different faiths. And then her friends said, I hope you can play some piano for us after dinner. And that's not something that I had prepared for. But I ended up playing one of the songs that I had written for a church context, and we got to talk a little bit about that. Perhaps more generally, maybe the gift of music can just be a spark for conversation. It seems safe to ask people what kind of music they like listening to, what artists they like, and so on. But those conversations can take us into deep places, like significant memories of loss or heartbreak or falling in love. They can open up conversations about where our culture is at and what we're longing for. Or they may take us to our traditions and our history, giving us a chance to talk about a bigger story. Well, to summarize, what does image-bearing stewardship of music look like as we seek first God's kingdom? We receive it as a gift. It's part of our life of loving God and neighbor. And it can be a point of connection with those around us as we seek to witness to the good news of Jesus. I hope that was helpful just as a, a, a couple of examples, worked examples for you to start to see how this framework might guide you through thinking about how to live for Jesus in his world while we wait his, for his return. Well, it's been a big week. Time to bring it all together now. On page 54, you can see my summary of what we've tried to cover this week. We've been looking at Christology, the theological term, which means who Jesus is and what he has done, but through the lens of relationships, how understanding Jesus better changes all of our relationships. And I hope you've come to understand that a bit more deeply. But to finish, what can we say about Jesus and the gospel of relationships? Well, on Monday morning, I said that we all want to be known and loved. We want to find our place in the world. We want to be authentic. And yet we all experience challenges and difficulties in these areas. Well, Jesus comes amongst us announcing that there is hope for our relationships. Because of what he's done in his death and resurrection, we can be known, accepted and loved by a heavenly Father who made us. And in Jesus' body, the church of sisters and brothers in Christ, who have been adopted with us into his family, we experience Philadelphia the love of sisters and brothers in your new family in Christ. And we can know our place in the world because we've been created, as we saw this morning, to be kingdom-seeking, image-bearing stewards under Jesus the living Lord. And one day we'll be part of his perfected creation. We can know our purpose. We can find our place. And we can 
find that elusive, authentic me. Not by turning inwards, but because Jesus gifts it to us. We are his new creation, no longer in the flesh, but reborn in the spirit. And it's his spirit dwelling within us that helps us then to put to death sin, the relationship wrecker. And his spirit who reassures us that we are the loved children of God, even when all of our earthly relationships might, might have turned sour. See, the living Lord Jesus is massive, radical good news for relationships. He's good news for our campus as they struggle with relationships. He's good news for your family. He's good news for your friends, for our city, and indeed the whole world, because we are all searching for those very things. And the answers are there in Jesus and, and this gospel about him. And my prayer is that as a result of this week, that the Lord by his spirit would graft that into my heart and my mind. So that's how I see things. That's how I see people. And that's how I live and love him. And my prayer is that that's true for you too. The answers are there in Jesus and his gospel. Amen.